Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 18, 527 to 532, part 2, The Eternal Peace, The Danube Frontier, and Diplomacy. Last time, we followed the developments on the Persian frontier. The war which began in Justin's reign over Lazica and Iberia soon spilt out across the whole eastern border, as King Kavad committed the bulk of his armed forces to securing a favourable peace. Justinian was forced to scramble, building new defences and appointing new commanders until something stemmed the tide. The new master of soldiers in the east, Belisarius, was the man to finally do it, winning a famous victory at the Battle of Dara in 530. In fact, it was not only Belisarius who was victorious in the campaigning season of that year. To the north, Sitas, the commander of the army of Armenia, had met another large Persian force at Satala, outside Theodosiopolis, and routed it. Unfortunately for Sitas, we have no Procopius to tell us about what a wonderful guy he was, and so we are left with only the statement that he used a ruse to secure victory over the Persian commander Mihir Mihro. However he did it, it was clearly an impressive achievement, which allowed him, soon after, to conquer a slice of Persian Armenia and secure the defection of two important Armenian chiefs, Narses and Aratius. Justinian was thrilled with these victories, not only because they arrested the Persian advance, but because they were his men who had succeeded. An important fact for an emperor with little pedigree beyond his peasant uncle's sponsorship. In keeping with his favourite policy, he demanded more building of fortifications, including a massive upgrade to the existing walls of Dara. He wanted the city to appear impregnable, and renamed it Justiniana Newtown. For some reason, though, Dara was oddly hard to rename. Anastasius had ordered it to be called Anastasiopolis when he first converted it into a fortress, but the name never stuck, and the city's odd pride in its original name continues. 
Listeners of the history of Rome might be expecting to hear that instead of building more defensive fortifications, the armies of the Roman Empire might now take the fight to the Persians. This week, Belisarius marches on Tessaphon, and Cavad is the one scrambling to defend his cities. That had been the usual balance of power for centuries, but it was no longer the case. The Romans had lost half of their empire. The Persians had not. It's also worth remembering that war with Persia was not something Justinian had any interest in. Born in the Balkans and educated about the glories of the Roman past, it was west, not east, that Justinian looked. By the autumn of 530, peace negotiations resumed, with the Byzantines ever keen to end the war. But unfortunately, the victories at Dara and Satala pretty much guaranteed that war would continue. Kavad wanted a peace favourable to the Persian state. To agree a treaty after being defeated would undermine him, and so he spent the winter licking his wounds, and when the spring of 531 arrived, his armies were back on the move. To show the Byzantines that he meant business, Kavad put together an all-cavalry army of 20,000, including 5,000 under Al-Munthar of the Lachmids, and sent them straight towards Antioch. Belisarius began to follow them, but could not take his whole army, as he needed to leave a strong contingent to guard Dara. He did have with him a party of Huns, and his Ghassanid allies under their new phylarch, Harith. The Persians began to ravage the province of Euphratensis, and then moved into the territory of Antioch itself. Many of the citizens of the great city fled in panic at the news. Remember that their walls were still being rebuilt after a devastating earthquake. Belisarius was able to get his forces to the city of Chalcis, which prevented the Persians from advancing any further. The young general seemed content to just let the Persians return home. They would do damage on their way, no doubt, but he saw no point in engaging them, while he was outnumbered. However, the other commanders in the area disagreed. Sunikas, the leader of one of the groups of Huns from the Battle of Dara, had already harried Persian foragers, and Hermogenes, the master of offices, had just arrived with fresh troops who were agitating for battle. Another pressure on Belisarius was the fact that the prisoners who Al-Munthar had taken two years before, when he had sacrificed all those nuns, had just been ransomed and had returned to cities nearby, including Chalcis. Belisarius was called upon by the friends and family of these people to take revenge, now. Apparently against his better judgment, Belisarius led his forces to Callinicum, where an attack was immediately launched. It was a mistake, and the superior Persian cavalry swept the Byzantines off the field, driving many into the Euphrates River. Belisarius kept his infantry in tight formation to prevent a slaughter, but it was a defeat which undid the psychological success of the Battle of Dara. Now we might suspect that Procopius, being our main source for the battle, was massaging his employer's ego. 
Belisarius didn't want to engage the Persians, you understand. It was the fault of other men. However, this inability to control subordinate commanders happens repeatedly in Belisarius's career, to the point where it seems to be a huge weakness of his as a general. The truly great generals of history, like Caesar or Alexander, were men who others wanted to fight for. And for reasons we will explore down the road, Belisarius did not seem to command such respect. Justinian responded to the defeat by launching a commission of inquiry to look into who was to blame. Quite the modern bureaucratic solution to the situation, and Belisarius was duly recalled to Constantinople. This wasn't quite the slap in the face it might seem. Belisarius wasn't being fired exactly, just reassigned. To the north, though, the war continued to go better for the Byzantines. An experienced general of Gothic origin named Bessus arrived on the eastern front to become the dukes in Mesopotamia and routed a force of Persian cavalry on the banks of the Tigris. In response, a large Persian force tried to besiege Martyropolis, but Bessas and Buzis marshaled the garrison inside the city and held out through autumn right through until November. Byzantine reinforcements gathered and were ready to engage the Persians when news came that Kavad, the king of kings, was dead. The Persian troops withdrew, and Justinian breathed a sigh of relief. Four years of war had exhausted his treasury, and now, perhaps, the expected civil war in Persia would put an end to the conflict. Kavad's son Kusro was declared the new king, but Justinian withheld his ambassadors, waiting to see what Kavad's other sons would do, and hoped that one of them might overthrow him and be in a position to strike a more favourable peace. But Kusro swiftly defeated his brothers and sent word to Justinian that he was now ready to negotiate. Kusro did want peace. He may have cleared away the obvious rivals to the throne, but he needed time to consolidate. And so the two men, who once might have been brothers, began to discuss terms. The negotiations lasted for a whole year, as ambassadors and messengers headed back and forth across the border, but eventually agreements were made. The Persians would withdraw from Lazica, while the Byzantines would do the same in Armenia. Dara would remain where it was, but the Byzantines agreed to withdraw the Dukes of Mesopotamia from living there, so that his troops would be stationed further away from the frontier at Constantia. However, Kusro insisted that Justinian pay for the peace. The Persians felt that as almost all the fighting had taken place on the Byzantine side, they had had the better of the war, and therefore they should be paid for their withdrawal. Although the optics were not good for Justinian, as paying tribute was what it looked like, he agreed to do it. The Byzantines would pay 11,000 pounds of gold in order to secure the treaty, though ostensibly the money was to pay for the troops who would guard the Caucasus Mountains. 
Although this was a huge pile of cash, it's perhaps not as shocking as it might seem at first. That amount was roughly equivalent to the tax bill of Egypt for one year. Certainly a large number, but this peace treaty had no time limit. It was a perpetual peace, or as some would translate it, optimistically, an eternal peace. Previous treaties between the two powers had been for, say, 50 years, or some other long duration, which suggested that peace should be the norm between them. But a perpetual peace was quite the statement. Within the treaty, it was explicitly stated that the king and emperor were brothers who should aid one another financially or militarily, without question. While these glowing sentiments may not have been taken entirely seriously, Justinian felt it was definitely worth paying a large sum now to end the expensive and damaging hostilities for good. As we shall see next episode, the expenses were racking up back home as Justinian's grand projects took effect. Now he could give his whole attention to them and the other plans that were forming in his mind. For now, though, we travel back in time to 527 and see what's been going on on the other major border of the empire, the Danube River. As you may remember from earlier episodes, the Danube frontier was in a state of flux. Bulgars, Slavs, Heralds and Lombards lived alongside one another and eyed the riches of the empire with envy. Some would be paid to protect the border, some would sign up for the army, while others would raid the land and grab what they could. Around 520, Justin's other nephew, Germanus, was made master of the soldiers in Thrace and drove off some Slavic raiders, leaving the Balkans quiet for the next few years. However, in 527, the year Justinian became emperor, a major raid on Thrace took place, with Bulgars and Slavs joining in. The two people seem to have cooperated, or co-mingled, on these invasions, so you are free to assume that both are involved in these attacks. In 528, there was a raid on Illyricum, and in 529, the Bulgars returned and defeated Germanus and his colleague Baduaris in battle. The Bulgars pushed on into Thrace and the environs of Constantinople, hanging around long enough to extract ransom money from Justinian for the officers they had captured. However, the tide was about to turn in the emperor's favour, just as it did at a similar time on the Eastern Front. A gepid prince named Mundus had been working for Theodoric the Ostrogoth until the latter's death in 526. At this point, Mundus returned home, and a few years later accepted an invitation from Justinian to bring his retinue and come work for the empire. As he had done in the east, Justinian made two new appointments that winter. Mundus would become master of soldiers for Illyricum, and a certain Chilbudius was made master of soldiers for Thrace. Chilbudius may have had Gothic origins, or possibly even Slavic ones. Either way, he was a competent general who, like Sitas and Belisarius, had once worked directly for the emperor. 
in 530, the Bulgars came back for more and were violently repulsed by the new generals. Mundus in particular crushed the force that he encountered and captured the Bulgar king. Both generals pushed their troops to the Danube itself and prevented any more raiding over the next three years. In fact, both led their forces into the territory of the Slavs, making raids of their own to send the message that the empire would not simply wait to be invaded. The work the two men did was so successful that we hear of no more serious raiding until the next decade. Jumping ahead slightly, in 533, Chilbudius took things too far and was killed in battle after crossing the river without a large enough force. Curiously, though, this is not the last we will hear of Chilbudius. In the meantime, though, Mundus's major victory over the Bulgars won him much acclaim back in Constantinople. Taking place as it did in the campaign season of 530, it coincided with Belisarius's famous victory at Dara. Justinian, the student of Roman history and eager restorer of its former glory, couldn't resist the opportunity and held a triumph in the city to celebrate the two victories. Justinian also melted down the statue of Theodosius that had stood in the Augusteon and replaced it with a statue of himself, dressed as Achilles, on a horse, holding a globe in one hand, facing the east, and with his other arm pointing to the rising sun. There are a number of interesting things to note about the statue. The first is obviously that Justinian had been nowhere near a battlefield, and yet all was for the glory of the emperor, who was to be seen as the one protecting his people. Second is that there were still relatives of the Theodosian family living in Constantinople, and the use of their ancestor's statue may have been a deliberate signal of Justinian's imperial legitimacy. This statement was slightly undercut by the fact that Justinian's statue was made of a bronze alloy which could shimmer like gold, while also, of course, being much cheaper. We've spent the majority of the last three episodes on the frontier, and soon we need to head back to the capital to spend more time with Justinian. What was the new emperor doing day by day? Why did he need to cut corners with his finances? Why was he underlining his right to rule to the city's nobility? Next episode, these are the questions we will answer. The equestrian statue, by the way, did last for another 900 years until the fall of the city when the Turks recycled it into a cannon. For now, though, we need to note some other developments in foreign affairs. Justinian's use of Christianity as a diplomatic tool continued in other arenas during the early years of his reign. In 527, the year he became emperor, he invited Grepes, king of the Herules, to convert his people to the one true faith. We don't know exactly how far Christianity had already penetrated amongst the Herul people, but a trip to Constantinople, lavish gifts and receptions, and the offer of future subsidies and titles was certainly enough for Grepes to accept Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. The Herulds now agreed to guard the border around Singidunum 
in the old province of Second Pannonia. This meant that herald troops were available to the Empire, as we saw last episode, in spectacular fashion at the Battle of Dara. The following year, some missionaries that Justinian had sponsored succeeded in converting a group of Huns who lived north of the Crimea. Their king, Grod, accepted the new emperor's invitation to come to Constantinople and receive the same baptism and gifts treatment. And Grod turned out to be an enthusiastic convert and returned home to persecute heresy, outraging his native priesthood by melting down the silver idols of their pagan gods. A rebellion broke out which overwhelmed Grod and destroyed the Byzantine garrison at Bosporus, one of the two imperial cities in the Crimea. Justinian sent a fleet to retake the city, and the rebels withdrew. However, the emperor now needed to find another people willing to keep an eye on the Huns, so he made overtures to the Ostrogoths. Now, don't get confused. This was a small group of Goths who had never moved west with their brethren and stayed put by the shores of the Black Sea. They were Orthodox Christians and accepted Byzantine cash in exchange for guarding imperial interests. Justinian naturally ordered the building of walls and defences to secure the area. Justinian's military successes did not go unnoticed in the West. In Vandal Africa, paranoia ran high amongst the leading men that their king Hilderic, who was on very friendly terms with the emperor, might voluntarily cede their territory to him. A coup in 530 deposed him and replaced him with his Aryan cousin Gelimer. Justinian sent strong letters of protest, demanding either Hilderic's restoration or his transfer to Constantinople. Gelimer refused either suggestion, and Justinian warned him that this meant the end of peace between the Empire and the Vandal Kingdom, which had been in effect since the time of Zeno. Gelimer was unmoved. In Italy, Amalasuntha, the daughter of Theodoric, found herself in a similar position to Hilderic, she continued to hear whispers that certain Gothic nobles planned on deposing her. Feeling increasingly isolated, she wrote to Justinian, asking if she could flee to imperial territory, should she need to. Justinian was more than happy to oblige, and had a mansion prepared for her in Dyrrhachium. When she heard this, she took action against the three leading conspirators. She sent them north on various pretexts, and then had them murdered. In the meantime, she had her possessions, and a good chunk of the treasury, sent by boat to Dyrrhachium, just in case her plan failed. However, no revolt came, so she recalled the boat, and for now, remained in charge at Ravenna. The final bit of information to note is that Mundus, the slayer of the Bulgars, was briefly appointed to replace Belisarius in the east. Mundus duly made the journey across the empire just as peace negotiations began and seemed to be going well. At this point, Justinian decided that Mundus was still needed in the Balkans and recalled him. By the end of 531, therefore, Mundus was wintering in the capital, along with Belisarius.
We close out today's episode with a few recommendations. If you would like more information on the Persian point of view on all these events, then I recommend a great website called Sasanika. It's an online resource book for Sasanian history, and the link to it can be found at the post for this episode at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com or on the Facebook page. Similar links can be found if you are looking for Byzantine-style music from Orthodox groups today. You can listen to online radio shows at Ancient Faith Radio or buy music from Concilia Press with singing in multiple languages, including English. Finally, there's a very cool website where the sites of Constantinople are being digitally recreated. Some of the images are spectacular, and there is even a moving video available, as if a camera were sweeping over the cityscape. I'm so grateful for all the kind support I've received for the podcast. Many listeners have provided helpful information and links. For example, on the comments for episode 15, listener Dan was able to answer another listener's question about the Roman postal system with a newspaper article he found. Thank you all so much for listening, and see you in two weeks' time.